Section 14 of Hunger by Knut Thompson. Translated by George Egerton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 4 Continued. I slept till between five and six in the morning. It was not yet light when I awoke, but all the same I got up at once. I had lain in all my clothes on account of the cold, and had no dressing to do. When I had drunk a little cold water and opened the door quietly, I went out directly, for I was afraid to face my landlady again. A couple of policemen who had been on watch all night were the only living beings I saw in the street. A while after, some men began to extinguish the lamps. I wandered about without aim or end, reached Kierkegaden and the road down towards the fortress. Cold and still sleepy, weak in the knees and back after my long walk, and very hungry. I sat down on a seat and dozed for a long time. For three weeks I had lived exclusively on the bread and butter that my landlady had given me, morning and evening. Now it was twenty-four hours since I had had my last meal. Hunger began to gnaw badly at me again. I must seek a help for it right quickly. With this thought I fell asleep again upon the seat. I was aroused by the sound of people speaking near me, and when I had collected myself a little I saw that it was broad day and that everyone was up and about. I got up and walked away. The sun burst over the heights, the sky was pale and tender, and in my delight over the lovely morning, after the many dark gloomy weeks, I forgot all cares and it seemed to me as if I had fared worse on other occasions. I clapped myself on the chest and sang a little snatch for myself. My voice sounded so wretched, downright exhausted it sounded, and I moved myself to tears with it. This magnificent day, the white heaven swimming in light, had far too mighty an effect upon me, and I burst into loud weeping. "'What is the matter with you?' inquired a man. I did not answer, but hurried away, hiding my face from all men. I reached the bridge. A large bark with the Russian flag lay in discharged coal. I read her name, Kopegoro, on her side. It distracted me for a time to watch what took place on board this foreign ship. She must be almost discharged. She lay with nine foot visible on her side, in spite of all the ballast she had already taken in and there was a hollow boom through the whole ship whenever the coal-heavers stamped on the deck with their heavy boots. The sun, the light, and the salt breath from the sea, all this busy merry life pulled me together a bit, and caused my blood to run lustily. Suddenly it entered my head that I could work on a few scenes from my drama whilst I sat there, and I took my papers out of my pocket. I tried to place a speech into a monk's mouth, a speech that ought to swell with pride and intolerance, but it was of no use. So I skipped over the monk and tried to work out an oration, the deemster's oration to the violator of the temple, and I wrote half a page of this oration, upon which I stopped. The right local color would not tinge my words, the bustle about me, the shanties, the noise of the gangways, and the ceaseless rattle of the iron chains 
fitted in so little with the atmosphere of the musty air of the dim middle ages that was to envelop my drama as with a mist. I bundled my papers together and got up. All the same, I got into a happy vein, a grand vein, and I felt convinced that I could effect something if all went well. If only I had a place to go to, I thought over it, stopped right there in the street and pondered, but I could not bring to mind a single quiet spot in the town where I could seat myself for an hour. There was no other way open. I would have to go back to the lodging-house in Vaterland. I shrank at the thought of it, and I told myself all the while that it would not do. I went ahead all the same, and approached nearer and nearer to the forbidden spot. Of course, it was wretched. I admitted to myself that it was degrading, downright degrading, but there was no help for it. I was not in the least proud. I dared make the assertion roundly that I was one of the least arrogant beings up to date. I went ahead. I pulled up at the door and waited over once more. Yes, no matter what the result was, I would have to dare it. After all said and done, what a bagatelle to make such a fuss about. For the first it was only a matter of a couple of hours. For the second, the Lord forbid that I should ever seek refuge in such a house again. I entered the yard. Even whilst I was crossing the uneven stones I was irresolute, and almost turned round at the very door. I clenched my teeth. No, no pride. At the worst I could excuse myself by saying I had come to say good-bye, to make a proper adieu, and come to a clear understanding about my debt to the house. I took forth my papers once more, and determined to thrust all irrelevant impressions aside. I had left off right in the middle of a sentence in the Inquisitor's address, Thus dictate God and the law to me, thus dictates also the counsel of my wise men, thus dictate I and my own conscience. I looked out of the window to think over what his conscience should dictate to him. A little row reached me from the room inside. Well, it was no affair of mine anyway. It was entirely and totally indifferent to me what noise arose. Why the devil should I sit thinking about it? Keep quiet now. Thus dictate I and my own conscience. But everything conspired against me. Outside in the street, something was taking place that disturbed me. A little lad sat and amused himself in the sun on the opposite side of the pavement. He was happy and in no fear of danger, just sat and nodded together a lot of paper streamers and injuring no one. Suddenly he jumps up and begins to curse. He goes backwards into the middle of the street and catches sight of a man, a full-grown man with a red beard, who was leaning out of an open window in the second story and who spat down on his head. The little chap cried with rage and swore impatiently up at the window, and the man laughed in his face. Perhaps five minutes passed in this way. I turned aside to avoid seeing the little lad's tears. Thus dictate I and my own conscience. I found it impossible to get any farther. At last everything began to get confused. It seemed to me that even that which I had already written was unfit to use, I, that the whole idea was contemptible rubbish. 
How could one possibly talk of conscience in the Middle Ages? Conscience was first invented by dancing master Shakespeare. Consequently, my whole address was wrong. Was there, then, nothing of value in these pages? I ran through them anew and solved my doubt at once. I discovered grand pieces, downright lengthy pieces of remarkable merit, and once again the intoxicating desire to set to work again darted through my breast, the desire to finish my drama. I got up and went to the door, without paying any attention to my landlord's furious signs to go out quietly. I walked out of the room firmly and with my mind made up. I went upstairs to the second floor and entered my former room. The man was not there, and what was to hinder me from sitting here for a moment? I would not touch one of his things. I wouldn't even use his table. I would just seat myself on a chair near the door and be happy. I spread the papers hurriedly out on my knees. Things went splendidly for a few minutes. Retort upon retort stood ready in my head, and I wrote uninterruptedly. I filled one page after the other, dashed ahead over stock and stone, chuckled softly in ecstasy over my happy vein, and was scarcely conscious of myself. The only sound I heard in this moment was my own merry chuckle. A singularly happy idea had just struck me about a church bell, a church bell that was to peal out at a certain point in my drama. All was going ahead with overwhelming rapidity. Then I heard a step on the stairs. I tremble and am almost beside myself. Sit, ready to bolt, timorous, watchful, full of fear at everything, and excited by hunger. I listen nervously, just hold the pencil still in my hand, and listen. I cannot write a word more. The door opens, and the pair from below enter. Even before I had time to make an excuse for what I had done, the landlady calls out, as if struck of a heap with amazement. Well, God bless and save us if he isn't sitting here again. Excuse me, I said, and I would have added more, but got no farther. The landlady flung open the door as far as it would go and shrieked. If you don't go out now, may God blast me, but I'll fetch the police. I got up. I only wanted to say goodbye to you, I murmured. And I had to wait for you. I didn't touch anything. I only just sat here on the chair. Yes, yes, there was no harm in that, said the man. What the devil doesn't matter? Let the man alone, he... By this time I had reached the end of the stairs. All at once I got furious with this fat, swollen woman, who followed close to my heels to get rid of me quickly, and I stood quiet a moment with the worst abusive epithets on my tongue, ready to sling at her. But I bethought myself in time and held my peace, if only out of gratitude to the stranger man who followed her and would have to hear them. She trod closely on my heels, railing incessantly, and my anger increased with every step I took. We reached the yard below. I walked very slowly, still debating whether I would not have it out with her. I was at this moment completely blinded with rage, and I searched for the worst word, an expression that would strike her dead on the spot, like a kick in her stomach. A commissionaire passes me at the entrance. 
He touches his hat. I take no notice. He applies to her, and I hear that he inquires for me, but I do not turn round. A couple of steps outside the door, he overtakes and stops me. He hands me an envelope. I tear it open, roughly and unwillingly. It contains half a sovereign, no note, not a word. I look at the man and ask, What tomfoolery is this? Who was the letter from? Oh, that I can't say, he replies, but it was a lady who gave it to me. I stood still, the commissionaire left. I put the coin into the envelope again, crumple it up, coin and envelope, wheel round and go straight towards the landlady, who is still keeping an eye on me from the doorway, and throw it into her face. I said nothing, I uttered no syllable, only noticed that she was examining the crumpled paper as I left her. Ha! That is what one might call comporting oneself with dignity. Not to say a word, not to mention the contents, but crumple together, with perfect calmness, a large piece of money, and fling it straight into the face of one's persecutor. One might call that making one's exit with dignity. That was the way to treat such beasts. When I got to the corner of Tomtegaden and the railway place, the street commenced suddenly to swim around before my eyes. It buzzed vacantly in my head, and I staggered up against the wall of a house. I could simply go no farther, couldn't even straighten myself from the cramped position I was in. As I fell up against it, so I remained standing, and I felt that I was beginning to lose my senses. My insane anger had augmented this attack of exhaustion. I lifted my foot and stamped on the pavement. I also tried several other things to try and regain my strength. I clenched my teeth, wrinkled my brows, and rolled my eyes despairingly. It helped a little. My thoughts grew more lucid. It was clear to me that I was about to succumb. I stretched out my hands and pushed myself back from the wall. The street still danced wildly round me. I began to hiccough with rage, and I wrestled from my very inmost soul with my misery, made a right gallant effort not to sink down. It was not my intention to collapse, no, I would die standing. A dray rolls slowly by, and I notice there are potatoes in it, but out of sheer fury and stubbornness, I take it into my head to assert that they are not potatoes, but cabbages, and I swore frightful oaths that they were cabbages. I heard quite well what I was saying, and I swore this lie wittingly, repeating time after time, just to have the vicious satisfaction of perjuring myself. I got intoxicated with the thought of this matchless sin of mine. I raised three fingers in the air and swore, with trembling lips, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, that they were cabbages. Time went. I let myself sink down on the steps near me, and dried the sweat from my brow and throat, drew a couple of long breaths, and forced myself into calmness. The sun slid down. It declined towards the afternoon. I began once more to brood over my condition. My hunger was really something disgraceful and, in a few hours more, night would be here again. The question was to think of a remedy while there was yet time. 
my thoughts flew again to the lodging-house from which I had been hunted away. I could on no account return there, but yet one could not help thinking about it. Properly speaking, the woman was acting quite within her rights in turning me out. How could I expect to get lodging with any one when I could not pay for it? Besides, she had occasionally given me a little food. Even yesterday evening, after I had annoyed her, she offered me some bread and butter. She offered it to me out of sheer good nature, because she knew I needed it, so I had no cause to complain. I began, even whilst I sat there on the step, to ask her pardon in my own mind for my behavior. Particularly, I regretted bitterly that I had shown myself ungrateful to her at the last, and thrown half a sovereign in her face. Half a sovereign! I gave a whistle. The letter the messenger brought me, where did it come from? It was only this instant I thought clearly over this, and I divined at once how the whole thing hung together. I grew sick with pain and shame. I whispered Yahali a few times, with hoarse voice, and flung back my head. Was it not I who, no later than yesterday, had decided to pass her proudly by if I met her, to treat her with the greatest indifference? Instead of that I had only aroused her compassion and coaxed an alms from her. No, 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 there would never be an end to my degradation. Not even in her presence could I maintain a decent position. I sank, simply sank, on all sides. Every way I turned, sank to my knees, sank to my waist, dived under in ignominy, never to rise again, never. This was the climax. To accept half a sovereign in alms without being able to fling it back to the secret donor, scramble for halfpence whenever the chance offered, and keep them, use them for lodging money, in spite of one's intense inner aversion. Could I not regain the half-sovereign in some way or another? To go back to the landlady and try to get it from her would be of no use. There must be some way, if I were to consider, if I were only to exert myself right well and consider it over. It was not, in this case, great God, sufficient to consider in just an ordinary way. I must consider so that it penetrated my whole sentient being, consider, and find some way to procure this half-sovereign. And I set to, to consider the answer to this problem. It might be about four o'clock. In a few hours' time I could perhaps meet the manager of the theatre, if only I had my drama completed. I take out my manuscript there where I am writing, and resolve, with might and main, to finish the last few scenes. I think until I sweat, and re-read from the beginning, but make no progress. No bosh, I say, no obstinacy now, and I write away at my drama, write down everything that strikes me, just to get finished quickly and be able to go away. I tried to persuade myself that a new supreme moment had seized me. I lied right royally to myself, deceived myself knowingly, and rode on, as if I had no need to seek for words. This is capital, this is really a find, whispered I, interpolatingly. Only just write it down. Halt! They sound questionable. They contrast rather strongly with the speeches in the first scene. Not a trace of the Middle Ages shone through the monk's words. 
I break my pencil between my teeth, jump to my feet, tear my manuscript in two, tear each page in two, fling my hat down in the street and trample upon it. I am lost, I whisper to myself. Ladies and gentlemen, I am lost. I utter no more than these few words as long as I stand there and tramp upon my hat. A policeman is standing a few steps away, watching me. He is standing in the middle of the street, and he only pays attention to me. As I lift my head, our eyes meet. Maybe he has been standing there for a long time watching me. I pick up my hat, put it on, and go over to him. Do you know what time it is? I ask. He pauses a bit as he hauls out his watch, and never takes his eyes off me the whole time. About four, he replies. Accurately, I say. About four, perfectly accurate. You know your business, and I'll bear you in mind. Thereupon I left him. He looked utterly amazed at me, stood and looked at me with gaping mouth, and holding his watch in his hand. When I got in front of the Royal Hotel, I turned and looked back. He was still standing in the same position, following me with his eyes. Ha, ha! That is the way to treat brutes. With the most refined effrontery, that impresses the brutes, puts the fear of God into them. I was peculiarly satisfied with myself, and began to sing a little strain. Every nerve was tense with excitement. Without feeling any more pain, without even being conscious of discomfort of any kind, I walked, light as a feather, across the whole market, turned round at the stalls, and came to a halt, sat down on a bench near our Saviour's church. Might it not just as well be a matter of indifference whether I returned the half-sovereign or not? When once I received it, it was mine, and there was evidently no want where it came from. Besides, I was obliged to take it when it was sent expressly for me. There could be no object in letting the messenger keep it. It wouldn't do either to send it back, a whole half-sovereign that had been sent to me. So there was positively no help for it. I tried to watch the bustle about me in the market, and distract myself with indifferent things, but I did not succeed. The half-sovereign still busied my thoughts. At last I clenched my fists and got angry. It would hurt her if I were to send it back. Why, then, should I do so? Always ready to consider myself too good for everything, to toss my head and say no thanks. I saw now what it led to. I was out in the street again. Even when I had the opportunity, I couldn't keep my good warm lodging. No, I must needs be proud jump up at the first word, and show I wasn't the man to stand trifling, chuck half-sovereigns right and left, and go my way. I took myself sharply to task for having left my lodging, and brought myself into the most distressful circumstances. As for the rest, I consigned the whole affair to the keeping of the yellowest of devils. I hadn't begged for the half-sovereign, and I had barely had it in my hand, but gave it away at once paid it away to utterly strange people whom I would never see again. That was the sort of man I was. I always paid out to the last doit whatever I owed. If I knew Yahalia right, neither did she regret that she had sent me the money. Therefore, 
why did I sit there working myself into a rage? To put it plainly, the least she could do was to send me half a sovereign now and then. The poor girl was indeed in love with me, ha, perhaps even fatally in love with me, and I sat and puffed myself up with this notion. There was no doubt that she was in love with me, the poor girl. It struck five o'clock. Again I sank under the weight of my prolonged nervous excitement. The hollow whirring in my head made itself felt anew. I stared straight ahead, kept my eyes fixed, and gazed at the chemists under the sign of the elephant. Hunger was waging a fierce battle in me at this moment, and I was suffering greatly. Whilst I sit thus and look out into space, a figure becomes little by little clear to my fixed stare. At last I can distinguish it perfectly plainly, and I recognize it. It is that of the cake-vendor, who sits habitually near the chemist's under the sign of the elephant. I give a start, sit half upright on the seat, and begin to consider. Yes, it was quite correct. The same woman before the same table on the same spot. I whistle a few times and snap my fingers, rise from my seat, and make for the chemist's. No nonsense at all. What the devil was it to me if it was the wages of sin, or well-earned Norwegian huckster pieces of silver from Kongsberg? I wasn't going to be abused. One might die of too much pride. I go on to the corner, take stock of the woman, and come to a standstill before her. I smile, nod as to an acquaintance, and shape my words as if it were a foregone conclusion that I would return some time. Good day say I. Perhaps you don't recognize me again. No, she replied slowly, and looks at me. I smile still more, as if this were only an excellent joke of hers, this pretending not to know me again, and say, Don't you recollect that I gave you a lot of silver once? I did not say anything on the occasion in question. As far as I can call to mind I did not. It is not my way to do so. When one has honest folk to deal with, it is unnecessary to make an agreement, so to say, draw up a contract for every trifle, ha ha. Yes, it was I who gave you the money. No, then, now was it you? Yes, I remember you, now that I come to think over it. I wanted to prevent her from thanking me for the money, so I say, therefore, hastily, whilst I cast my eye over the table in search of something to eat. Yes, I've come now to get the cakes. She did not seem to take this in. The cakes, I reiterate. I've come now to get them, at any rate the first installment. I don't need all of them today. You've come to get them? Yes, of course I've come to get them, I reply, and I laugh boisterously, as if it ought to have been self-evident to her from the outset that I came for that purpose. I take, too, a cake from the table a sort of white roll that I commence to eat. When the woman sees this, she stirs uneasily inside her bundle of clothes, makes an involuntary movement as if to protect her wares, and gives me to understand that she has not expected me to return to rob her of them. Really not, I say. Indeed, really not. She certainly was an extraordinary woman. Had she, then, at any time, had the experience that someone came and gave her a heap of shillings to take care of, 
without that person returning and demanding them again. No, just look at that now. Did she perhaps run away with the idea that it was stolen money, since I slung it at her in that manner? No, she didn't think that either. Well, that at least was a good thing, really a good thing. It was, if I might so say, kind of her, in spite of all. To consider me an honest man, ha ha, yes indeed, she really was good. But why did I give her the money then? The woman was exasperated, and called out loudly about it. I explained why I had given her the money, explained it temperately and with emphasis. It was my custom to act in this manner, because I had such a belief in every one's goodness. Always when any one offered me an agreement, a receipt, I only shook my head and said no thank you. God knows I did. But still the woman failed to comprehend it. I had recourse to other expedients, spoke sharply, and bade a truce to all nonsense. Had it never happened to her that any one had paid her in advance in this manner, I inquired. I meant, of course, people who could afford it. For example, any of the consuls. Never. Well, I could not be expected to suffer because it happened to be a strange mode of procedure to her. It was a common practice abroad. She had perhaps never been outside the boundaries of her own country. No, just look at that now. In that case, she could of course have no opinion on the subject. And I took several more cakes from the table. She grumbled angrily, refused obstinately to give up any more of her stores from off the table, even snatched a piece of cake out of my hand and put it back into its place. I got enraged, banked the table, and threatened to call the police. I wished to be lenient with her, I said. Were I to take all that was lawfully mine, I would clear her whole stand, because it was a big sum of money that I had given to her. But I had no intention of taking so much. I wanted in reality only half the value of the money, and I would, into the bargain, never come back to trouble her again. May God preserve me from it, seeing that that was the sort of creature she was. At length she shoved some cakes towards me, four or five, at an exorbitant price, the highest possible price she could think of, and bade me take them and be gone. I wrangled still with her, persisted that she had at least cheated me to the extent of a shilling, besides robbing me with her exorbitant prices. "'Do you know there is a penalty for such rascally trickery?' said I. "'God help you, you might get penal servitude for life, you old fool!' She flung another cake at me, and, with almost gnashing teeth, begged me to go. And I left her. Ha! A match for this dishonest cake-vendor was not to be found. The whole time, whilst I walked to and fro in the market-place and ate my cakes, I talked loudly about this creature and her shamelessness, repeated to myself what we both had said to one another. And it seemed to me that I had come out of this affair with flying colors, leaving her nowhere. I ate my cakes in face of everybody, and talked this over to myself. The cakes disappeared, one by one. They seemed to go no way. No matter how I ate, I was still greedily hungry. Lord, to think they were of no help! I was so ravenous that I was about to devour the last little cake that I had decided to spare, right from the beginning. 
to put it aside, in fact, for the little chap down in Vogmansgade, the little lad who played with the paper streamers. I thought of him continually, couldn't forget his face as he jumped and swore. He had turned round towards the window when the man spat down on him, and he had just looked up to see if I was laughing at him. God knows if I should meet him now, even if I went down that way. I exerted myself greatly to try and reach Vogsmangada, passed quickly by the spot where I had torn my drama into tatters, and where some scraps of paper still lay about, avoided the policeman whom I had amazed by my behavior and reached the steps upon which the laddie had been sitting. He was not there. The street was almost deserted, dusk was gathering in, and I could not see him anywhere. Perhaps he had gone in. I laid the cake down, stood it upright against the door, knocked hard, and hurried away directly. He is sure to find it, I said to myself. The first thing he will do when he comes out will be to find it and my eyes grew moist with pleasure at the thought of the little chap finding the cake. I reached the terminus again. Now I no longer felt hungry, only the sweet stuff I had eaten began to cause me discomfort. The wildest thoughts, too, surged up anew in my head. Supposing I were, in all secretness, to cut the hawser mooring one of the ships. Supposing I were to suddenly yell out fire. I walk farther down the wharf, find a packing-case and sit upon it, fold my hands, and am conscious that my head is growing more and more confused. I do not stir, I simply make no effort whatever to keep up any longer. I just sit there and stare at the Copegoro, the bark flying the Russian flag. I catch a glimpse of a man at the rail, the red lantern slung at the port shines down upon his head and I get up and talk over to him. I had no object in talking, as I did not expect to get a reply either. I said, Do you sail tonight, Captain? Yes, in a short time, answered the man. He spoke Swedish. Hem, I suppose you wouldn't happen to need a man. I was at this instant utterly indifferent as to whether I was met by a refusal or not. It was all the same to me what reply the man gave me, so I stood and waited for it. Well, no, he replied, unless it chanced to be a young fellow. A young fellow! I pulled myself together, took off my glasses furtively, and thrust them into my pocket, stepped up the gangway, and strode on deck. I have no experience, said I, but I can do anything I am put to. Where are you bound for? We are in ballast for Leith, to fetch coal for Cadiz. All right, said I forcing myself upon the man. It's all the same to me where I go. I am prepared to do my work. Have you ever sailed before? he asked. No, but as I tell you, put me to a task and I'll do it. I am used to a little of all sorts. He bethought himself again. I had already taken keenly into my head that I was to sail this voyage, and I began to dread being hounded on shore again. What do you think about it, Captain? I asked at last. I can really do anything that turns up. What am I saying? I would be a poor sort of chap if I couldn't do a little more than just what I was put to. I can take two watches at a stretch if it comes to that. It would only do me good, and I could hold out all the same. All right. Have a try at it. If it doesn't work well, we can part in England. Of course, I reply in my delight, 
and I repeated over again that we could pardon England if it didn't work, and he set me to work. Out in the fjord I dragged myself up once, wet with fever and exhaustion, and gazed landwards, and bade farewell for the present to the town, to Christiania, where the windows gleamed so brightly in all the homes. The End of Hunger by Knut Hompson Translated by George Egerton, 1890